Well, amen. Excited to continue this series with you guys that um, Scott launched for us last week called The Servant Songs, in which we're looking at these passages from the book of Isaiah that depict the servant of the Lord to us. And there's times, kind of like you heard in Scott's messages last week, that it seems like the servant is unfaithful Israel. At times, it feels like the servant is faithful Israel, the righteous remnant. And other times, it seems like it can't be Israel. It has to be someone else, which, of course, we know ultimately is Jesus. And so it's a beautiful um, portion of the scriptures um, that I'm excited to be in together this morning. Um, So my message title, let me see if this will... There we go. Is um, a song of persevering obedience, which is a mouthful, but it's really what this passage is about. So, um, Mark, will you change the slides for me? I'm just going to read verses 4 to 7. If you'll do that for me, that would be great. So turn to Isaiah chapter 50, and I'm going to read verses 4 to 7 for us, where we'll be today. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, And I know that I shall not be put to shame. So I'm going to start this message off and give uh, you you guys what all of you want. And that's beginning with a gardening metaphor. So, you just got to know your audience, right? So, um, in the world of plant life, there are annuals. And an annual is a plant that, generally speaking, it, it dies down in the winter and um, this, the species only persists by seeding itself and the next generation coming through, through that way. But a perennial is a plant that generally what happens is the leaves in the top portion of the plant dies down um, that's above ground during the winter. Um, but then it regrows um, in the following growing season from the original root system. And it can kind of persist through multiple growing seasons. So with that said little context, let me jump into this quote from Eugene Peterson. Do you think of Christian faith as a fragile style of life that can flourish only when weather conditions are just right? I think that's a good question. He goes on and says, or do you see it as a tough perennial that can stick it out through storm and drought, survive the trampling of careless feet and the attacks of vandals? You know, I think sometimes we imagine our Christian life is just waiting for things to come into alignment, that if the conditions were just better, I'd really love Jesus. If the conditions were just right in my marriage, in my workplace, in my career, um, in my relationships, then I can really thrive, but I'm waiting for things to kind of align that way. And passages like Isaiah 50 give us a different portrait that you can be confident and unashamed in God while having to persevere through intense hardship. So let's look at verse four again. It says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. I love that imagery. 
The servant of the Lord is introduced to us in Isaiah 42, which when Pastor Bart comes back, he'll preach on um, in, in two weeks. Um, but in that passage, you'll find that the servant of the Lord is depicted as incredibly gentle. He won't uh, break a bruised reed. He won't snuff out a smoldering wick. And these are two, two images of fragility, right? So think of like a reed along the Nile River. Um, and those, maybe you've seen like the Prince of Egypt movies or something like that. Um, that's already been kind of broken. Um, that's just, uh, it would take very little effort to snap it completely. Or a smoldering wick. Imagine this candle that's just barely lit. And it would take almost nothing to snuff it out. And the servant is depicted as this one who won't snap the hurting, won't snuff out the faint. And here he's this one who, he knows the kinds of things to say that sustain weary people. You know, sometimes I think I'll find myself in a season of life that I'm discontent with and I'll try to hold God to this selective list of promises. Um, you know, basically looking for nothing from him except the exit sign in the season, I, season that I'm in. You know, maybe I'm like, I have this list of Bible passages and I'm saying, God, I'm just holding you to these promises. To which I think God could say, which promises are you talking about, Gabe? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. That one? Or... Through many trials and tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God? Well, no, Lord, not that in particular. Promises generically. Um, and I think of things like what Jesus said in John 16, I've said these things to you that you may know that in me you have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. The thing that will throw you through the ringer is what I've already defeated. And I think the truth is this, is that we all want a God who delivers the weary, but do we want a God who sustains the weary? And that's the portrait and the ministry of the servant here in this text. I think those passages like John 16, 33 are gold to you because it tells you of the reality of suffering in a fallen world especially for those who are seeking to resist what the fallen world stands for, but it also tethers you to the victory of the gospel, right? And those are the kind of words that sustain weary people. There is this uh, great story I, I read recently. There's a pastor at a church in um, California called Bethel. Um, his name's Chris Vallotton, and he was in a prayer service one time, um, and he laid his hand on this woman to pray for her. And as he did, he immediately got this, this thought of wanting to kill himself. And he said, I've been in deliverance ministry long enough that I know that was my gift of discernment and, and activation. And so he asked her, are you doing okay? To, and, to which the woman said she was doing fine. And then he asked her, have you had any thoughts of wanting to kill yourself? And she said, her, her glasses fogged up and through tears she just said, Yes, for the past six months, I've wanted to kill myself every day, and I don't know why. And he said, he prayed a little bit more, and then he asked her, um, was there something that happened six months ago that caused you to think, I can always take my life to escape the pain? Um, and it was like this light bulb went off, and she said, yeah, my, I lost my grandchild six months ago. I mean, she was in so much fog that she wasn't even connecting her grief to that. Um, and then he said, 
you partner with the spirit of death instead of finding peace in Jesus. Jesus was so good at meeting people exactly where they were and offering that peace. I think of the story, don't y'all love the story of Jesus with the woman at the Samaritan well? And the way he just is able to speak right into her pain, even her trauma, in a way that doesn't shame or discourage her. I mean, that's a gift, to be able to speak into the to put your hand and to put your focus on the darkest, most painful places of someone's life and they leave feeling alive, feeling better, being offered eternal streams of water. He's so good at that. Jesus knows the word to sustain the weary, but he doesn't just know the words. I love the in Isaiah 50 verse four, he says he has an instructed tongue, like God's taught his tongue He also has a taut ear, as the verse continues. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Jesus has this taut ear. And if you read the Gospels, you know, I think of John, where Jesus says, I only do what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I hear the Father, uh, what I see the Father doing. You know, at one point, his disciples ask him, like, have you eaten anything? You look a little hungry. And he says, um, and they're like, has anyone given us something to eat? And he's like, my will is, my food's to do the will of the Father. Like, that's how I eat, you know, which is just this absurd claim. But that was, that was food for Jesus, just doing what God says. Um, and so in verse 5, the text goes on and says, the Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious I turn not backwards. Now, what happens is you look at this portion of Isaiah, which is roughly Isaiah 40 through 55. The servant is depicted in multiple scenarios. And oftentimes, the servant is Israel failing to be the servant God requires them to be. So, for example, in Isaiah 42, verse 18, it says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Who is, or deaf as my messenger whom I send, who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord. Pretty harsh words. He sees many things, but doesn't observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. And then again, Isaiah 48, verse 8. You've never heard, you've never known. From of old your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would deal treacherously, and that from your birth, from before birth, you were called a rebel. So on the one hand, you have these passages in Isaiah where Israel has this unbelievably high calling to be the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord in the earth. And basically what's recounted is their historic failure to be the people that hear God and respond obediently to God, right? And that they are this treacherous rebel. And then we come to our verse in which the servant's saying, I wasn't rebellious. I obeyed everything I heard, and I heard everything God said. So I think, how does this approach us? And I would say it's this. I mean, have you ever felt unable to hear God? Or have you ever been in this place where you feel like God is talking to you, and you're just unwilling to obey? Playing the rebel rather than the servant. And it's in this place 
where we're struck, where you're struck by your own failure to serve God as he ought to be served, to glorify God to the degree that he deserves to be glorified, that Jesus steps in. And he becomes the servant Israel could never be. He becomes the faithful servant to God that you and I fail to be. And this is where the scriptures again and again, time after time, bring us to the incarnation, which is another way of saying that God came to us in Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled the role that you could not fulfill. And a human being for once served God to the degree that God was worthy to be served which is one of the most historic events in human history, that God actually got what he deserved from a human being in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So again in verse five, it says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. In some ways, I don't know what to do with Jesus. Have y'all ever felt that? You're like, Jesus, you're so amazing that I don't know what to do with you, right? Um, I mean, he looks at his disciples and says, I eat by doing God's will. I only ever do what I hear the Father saying to do. That's all I ever do. And, I mean, what do you do with someone who wakes up every single morning hearing everything God's saying and doing everything God says to do? Like, what do you do with someone like that? I mean, to me, it's actually a little bit paralyzing at one level. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. I mean, what do you do with someone who, who's never experienced a rebellious moment? Not even once. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's asking the Lord that this cup of suffering might pass from him, he was always resolved to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That was the closest Jesus came, but it wasn't even a hint of rebellion. It was just, if there's another way, let's go with that. But I only want your will, Lord. I mean, I wake up a lot of days to the tune of Gabe's will be done. And to a large extent, that's how I live out the day. Now, I don't want to believe that over time, I'm growing in Christ-likeness. I'm learning to love my wife better, to serve those that I'm called to serve, to sacrifice in the places where I'm called to sacrifice, that in all my actions and in all my thoughts and in all my intentions, I glorify God. But everything that I am pursuing was just another moment in the life of Jesus, whose entire life could be summed up in that prayer of surrender at the Garden of Gethsemane. I know what it's like to obey God. I'm sure you do too. But I don't know what it's like to live a life like Jesus lived. And neither does anyone who's ever lived including the 12 apostles or Paul or anyone from church history or anyone alive today. So let me make a paradoxical statement here. Jesus is both profoundly relatable and profoundly unrelatable. So let's take those two extremes here. The Jesus who's entirely relatable is the Jesus of liberal Christianity, who basically depicts this Jesus who is essentially this idealized human, right? The best of us. Not the son of God, not divine. Um, just a really great example, right? Now, that entirely relatable Jesus falls apart when we think of verses like Colossians 1.19. I could put up a ton, but for in him, that's Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
I mean, literally, all of deity was habitating this human being, right? Um, I used to, I remember my Uncle Alan used to have this, this <laughs> he used to say that, you know, Jesus, um, the whole, you know, Jesus was the only human in whom the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. Holy Spirit comes on Jesus as this gentle little dove. Beloved, we don't get a dove. We get fire. I mean, think about the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus said, John came to baptize with water. I come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. That's, you know, as he's getting this gentle little dove. I mean, we forget the Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. So in a human being that's utterly sinless, the Holy Spirit could just flutter down and just nest totally undisturbed without any fear of ever being disturbed. We get a torrential blaze of fire because there's stuff in me that needs to be purged, right? There's stuff in us that needs to get burned up. And it's a good thing we don't get the spirit as a dove because we'd be chasing that little dove off every day of our lives. I mean, I'm glad that we, I mean, I'm glad the spirit's not flighty, you know? Because the Holy Spirit knows that we will try to lie to it, Acts 5.3. We'll resist the Spirit, Acts 7.51. And we'll try to quench that fire, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The Spirit was never worried Jesus might do that, but we'll do that. So that's, that's the Jesus who's entirely relatable. That, you know, Jesus is not entirely relatable. He is unique, Right? But then there's the other side of the Jesus who's entirely unrelatable. And this usually takes place when we so exalt his divinity that we lose sight of his humanity, right? I think of verses like uh, uh, Hebrews 4.15 that says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin, even with the knowledge that he is about to raise her brother from the dead, that doesn't prevent Jesus from empathizing with the pain of Mary and Martha. That's more relatable than I would be. I mean, think about it. If I knew that God was about to give someone back the very thing they'd lost and they were heartbroken over, I wouldn't treat that as a pastoral moment to be present with them. I'd say, dry your tears, I've got great news. Right? That's not what Jesus does. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid them? They said, Lord, come and see. Jesus Jesus knows the words to sustain the weary and he knows the words to deliver the weary. Lazarus, come out. It's the relatability of Jesus that inspires you and I to live like he lived and it's the unrelatability of Jesus that exalts him as unique, as Messiah, as my savior. 
And it's in the fact that he came to us as the man the world had never seen, as the man the world could not produce, hard as it tried. It's in the fact that he heard God and obeyed God fully, that he woke up every single morning, morning by morning, day by day, hearing everything God said, obeying everything God said. And it's in the fact that I have not lived such a life, and he has lived such a life, that in his acceptable life I'm saved. And that anyone through repentance and faith can become this glorious man's disciple, following him. And then, yes, asking God that we might live as he lived, serve as he served. That God would give you a taut tongue to know the words to sustain weary people all around you in your spheres. There's broken, weary people all around you that need us to have a taut tongue, to give us taut ears, that we'd wake up morning by morning like those who are taut. Verse 6 moves us really into the persevering obedience of this text, and it's, it gets intense from here. I gave my back to those who strike in my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Um, years ago, it was kind of when I was 15, 16, the, really that first time in my life when I was, um, had a season where I was devouring scripture. And I remember I was reading through Isaiah and I came across this passage. And I stopped in this passage and, just, and was just meditating on, on it. And this verse, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And I went to bed meditating on that verse, and um, I went to bed that night with, with a dream. And in the dream, I heard a voice, and the voice said, Matthew 27, 30. And so I, I woke up from my, uh, from my dream that next morning, and I remembered, I heard a voice say, Matthew 27, 30. And I looked up Matthew 27, 30, and this is what Matthew 27, 30 is. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Um, literally woke me up the next morning with a taut ear. Um, gave me the New Testament parallel to the Old Testament prophecy in my sleep. And I share this to say I thought about, you know, sometimes I hesitate sharing stories like this because I don't want to in any way put the spotlight on me. But I say this more to say, I want us to believe God speaks. Um, it's one thing to read Bible verses about a God who speaks, but it's hard to really believe it happens unless we have stories of that. And that our, the, the water level of our faith would rise, that we really could be a people that wake up every day hearing from God. I mean, we'll never hear to the extent that Jesus did and bay to the extent that Jesus did. I get that, but that's not the point. Our, you know, the end of the bumper video is we'll never replace the servant of the Lord, right? Um, which we never do. But I just want to encourage us, let's be a people that believe God speaks. He actually wants to teach our tongues what to say. He actually wants to teach our ears what to listen for. And all of this, um, this persevering, being struck, being spit, all of that that Jesus went through was about persevering obedience for him. Um, Hebrews 5.8 says, although he, 
was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. That idea of Jesus learning obedience is a real mystery to me. Um, I wonder what that means. I don't really know. But he learned obedience through what he suffered, the scriptures tell us. In these verses, you know, Isaiah 54 through 7 are really God's academy, whereby we get taught tongues, taught ears, and often is this learning by a trial of fire, um, through suffering, through persecution, like the servant shows us in this text. Um, But what we find is that hearing and obeying are two interwoven concepts that cannot be separated from each other. And that's something we find throughout the Bible. So in the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, the Hebrew word uh, for to listen or to hear is shema. And shema is also the word for to obey. So hearing and obedience are the same word. What's interesting about it is that's not even just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, which was written in a different language, Greek, the Greek word for to listen and to hear, um, akuo, also means to obey. So Old and New Testament, and from a, a, a biblical sp- perspective, if you've heard but never obeyed, then biblically speaking, it's as though you never actually heard. That's what the Bible says. So we can't just be voice of God junkies. I'll just let that sink in for a second. You can't just be voice of God junkies who just want your ears tickled by God's words. It's, I heard, God opened my ear and I was not rebellious, verse five. To hear and to obey is literally the same word in both Old and New Testament. Now, someone may say to me, kind of in this context, if you learn obedience through suffering, Gabriel, people can learn obedience through blessing too. And I guess my reaction to that is, I mean, for one thing, I try not to make universal statements. There's always an exception. There's always like an example that breaks the norm or whatever. But on average, we don't really learn obedience through blessing. I mean, if I, say for example, we're in the store and Adeline really wants this doll and she pesters us for it and we say no. And then a few weeks later, I bring Adeline to me and I say, hey, Adeline, um, I, want you to, I want you to obey me. I'm going to ask you to do something. I don't want you to make any excuses. And I want you to delay in your obedience. Okay, Daddy, outside in the backyard is that doll you asked for a few weeks ago. I want you to go outside and I want you to play with it. Chances are pretty good she's going to obey, right? I mean, children and us typically don't learn obedience through retrieving our blessings. Your child's going to learn obedience by you saying, load the dishwasher. And they'll learn obedience through suffering as they load the dishes, (laughs) right? I mean, because that's awful. Um, Verse 7, back in our text, says, but the Lord God helps me. This is really kind of what it's driving to, the help of God. I would have loved to have brought in verse eight. It's really great, but I don't have enough time. Um, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. So the previous verse was, I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. And now the servant's saying, but I'm really not disgraced because of the presence of God. The presence of God changes the rules of the game. And in the public sphere, I might look like someone who's been disgraced, but that's impossible because God's with me. But the Lord God helps you, therefore I haven't been disgraced. Therefore, I've set my face like flint, meaning 
I, I, my, my gaze is locked in on the path of obedience before me. I can't turn to the right or to the left. I've set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame. You know, the reason Jesus knows the word to sustain the weary, as verse 4 tells us, is because he is no stranger to suffering and perseverance. I mean, if you look at the life of Jesus, you know, throughout his ministry in the Gospels, his own brothers didn't believe in him. Um, it wasn't until the, after the resurrection that they came around. Um, he found out early on in his ministry that the religious leaders wanted to kill him, and he lived with that knowledge for years. He was betrayed by a close friend, denied by another, and at the end, he was abandoned by the rest. In fact, at the end, there at the crucifixion, it was just his mom, Mary Magdalene, and John who had the courage to come to his public execution. Let me read you this quote, this story from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Christian on the eve of, the, of World War II. It says, when war seemed inevitable, Bonhoeffer's friends abroad wanted him to leave Germany to save his life, for he was unalterably opposed to serving in the army in an aggressive war. When asked by a Swede at the Ecumenical Conference of Fano, Denmark, in 1934, what will you do when war comes? He answered, I'll pray to Christ to give me the power not to take up arms. In June 1939, American friends got him out of Germany, but soon he felt that he could not stay there, that he had to return to his country. When he came to England on his return from the United States, his friends quickly realized that Bonhoeffer's heart belonged to his oppressed and persecuted fellow Christians in Germany, and that he would not desert them at the time when they needed him most. And then this powerful uh, letter that uh, he wrote, that Bonhoeffer wrote to an American friend of his, um, Reynold Niebuhr, he said this, I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share in the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make this choice in security. In Christ, God journeyed to us and took part in human suffering. In Christ, God refused to speak to your pain and my pain from a place of security. Now, Bonhoeffer's right. As a German Christian, he really would have had no right to come back after the war and become some voice in the reconstruction of Christian communities in Germany if he had left them in their hour of need, right? But the analogy really breaks down with God. Even if the analogy was different, even if the analogy was an American deciding, I'm going to go to Germany on the eve of World War II to suffer with German Christians so that I could earn a right to speak into their reconstruction after the war, even that analogy falls apart. Why? Because God doesn't have to earn the right to do anything with his creatures. He doesn't have to earn the right 
to judge his creatures or restore his creatures or redeem them in any particular way. God had every right to reconstruct us from a place of security. Every right. Jesus had every right to speak to the reconstruction of your fractured soul from a place of safety. He just chose not to. That wasn't the Father's plan, and he endured persevering obedience to that plan. If you're going through the crucible of faith right now in your life, you need people who are acquainted with suffering. You don't need people who are pretending that life is perfect. And then you need to be able to bleed in front of them. Have them show you their scars, you show you theirs. And ultimately, we need to bring people, and we ourselves need to come to the one who always knows the word to sustain the weary. One of the troubling parts about pastoral ministry is when I find myself in a moment where I'm struggling to find the word to sustain the weary. And those are moments that really bring me to my knees. (laughs) Jesus always knows the word to sustain the weary. There's this, uh, there's this story of this guy who came up to a Little League baseball game and um, he saw this kid in the outfield and he was still, the guy was still in his car and he called out and said, what's the score? And the kid said, oh, it's 18 to zero. We're losing 18 to zero. And, and the guy said, oh, wow, you don't seem very discouraged about that. And with this puzzled look on the kid's face, he goes, why would we be discouraged? We haven't even gotten to bat yet. And I think that the call to Christian perseverance can kind of sound like that. Like, life is beating the snot out of you, and somehow pastors are telling you to be joyful and encouraged. But that's exactly what the servant is doing in this scene. His beard's being ripped out. He's being struck. He's being publicly disgraced, but then has the audacity to say, I'm not disgraced at all because God's with me. And there's this very real sense that Christian obedience and perseverance believes something changes when God steps up to bat. I mean, it really does, no matter what's going on around. And all of that builds perseverance in you as you become weary and then strong and then weary again. You learn to lean into Jesus. And through all that, you become more convinced that, as verse 7 says, the Lord God helps me. I just want to take a moment to get personal, and we'll close in just a moment. But, I mean, is that your testimony? That God helps me. I'm going through life as someone that God helps. Just, so, just sim- as simple as that. Um, And if that is your testimony, then just take a moment in your soul and just speak that over your soul. God helps me. God's helping me.
maybe you're in a place right now where you just don't feel like you can confidently say, God's helping me. You feel alone, maybe. Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe you feel like, well, God used to help me. (laughs) I can point back to a season where I felt like God was helping me. And if that's you today, I hear you. I hear you. Let me pray for us. God, I ask that you would open our eyes. Open our ears. That we would see and hear the ways in which you are closer than a brother. Present and helping. Which gives us the power to persevere in our obedience, Lord. Would that become real by the power of the Spirit to everyone in this room? And that you would just elicit our worship, Lord. We love you, Jesus. You're amazing, Jesus. The life you lived is truly incredible. And thank you that because of your faithful obedience to the Father, you re-gift us the high calling to serve the Lord in a way that doesn't crush us because we live in your acceptable service. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand, I want to speak the benediction over you. I practiced it.